fun of her. <laughs> All the time. Um, She'd probably at leave. <laughs> at brunch? Leave the show. We're, we're yes, brunch. I would. Brunch I can't drinking. afford to brunch, but I can go. If you pay for him, I'll pay for him. All right, guys. We're back. Stanley is done making fun of me for the moment. (laughs) Never. Just for the moment. (laughs) Even Alyssa laughed. She's like, are you kidding me? I know, right? We're just getting started. I know, right? All right, guys. So uh, speaking of just getting started, we're actually starting a new segment. And guys, if you're just tuning in, my name is Selena Hill. I'm here with Stanley Fritz, who's on the PC ones and twos, and Alyssa Fuchs, who is our legal correspondent slash attorney slash she will lawyer you if you say something wrong. So... Um, all right, so there's something that's very, very important that we need to talk about that's just, frankly, not getting enough attention and enough enough recognition. And um, I'm not going to lie, one of the things that made me pay attention to this issue was a heart-wrenching photo of a two-year-old Syrian boy who was drowned while trying to migrate to Europe. Now, in the photo, he's laying face down on the beach, and he, he's dead. He's dead. He drowned. And it turns out that his father was, and his, well, his father, his mother, and his 11 year old um, older brother. They were all traveling from Syria as refuge as refugees because, as we know, Syria has been um, engulfed in an ongoing civil war for the last four years, and they were escaping this poverty-stricken, war-torn, war-torn uh, country. And while they were doing that, they were on a very dangerous route through the Mediterranean, and it happens that they were on a boat, and the boat, I think it, um, it capsized, and it turned over, and only the father survived, and he literally watched his two babies boys die in his hand turned around and saw his wife floating like a balloon and then the little boy washed up on shore and it just this little boy's body and that image on that turkish beach is just a some symbol of the desperation and the danger that hundreds of thousands of people in the middle east and africa face as they flee persecution again from war poverty and other hardships and this has been called the worst refugee crisis since world war ii and i know we're american and i know we usually don't pay a lot to uh, pay attention to a lot of things and i know it's labor day weekend but this is freaking freaking important and it's that's why we need to talk about it and um because these refugees they're literally dying for a better life according to the united nations refugee agency over 300,000 people have risked their lives using again this dangerous mediterranean sea route to reach greece and italy from other nations just this year and last Sunday, 37 people died when a boat capsized off the um, Liberian coast. And then, um, I, I think it was a few more weeks before that, 200 people died when another boat capsized off the Liberian coast. Meanwhile, 71 people were found dead, abandoned, and suffocated in the back of a truck, okay? Um, because they're trying to get away and to escape these conditions, and they're fleeing to Europe. Where are they coming from? They're coming from Iraq, Afghanistan, Nigeria, Sudan, Liberia, Pakistan, but mostly from Syria. And again, it's uh, uh, another reason why they're fleeing. In droves is because ISIS. ISIS has taken over so many parts in Syria and Iraq and just causing havoc. And these people need somewhere to go. And they're fleeing and they're dying and, and they're just trying to make a better life for themselves. And some of them are even being turned away, especially if they're darker skinned. That's also going on. So we have a lot, a lot to talk about. And we're also going to talk about how European, the European nation is handling it. 
Some nations are very welcoming and saying, you know, come into our come into our nation. Welcome. Other nations like Hungary have built a border to keep them out. Right. So we're going to talk about all of this with our very special guest who is on the line. His name is Joel Millman. He is a spokesperson for the International Organization for Migration. Good afternoon, Joel. Thank you, Selena, for having me. It's very important what you said, and I just want to correct a couple of things for your listener. I, I, I am under, I'm under the impression that the father of the Syrian boy, um, he survived, but I think the wife and the older son did as well. Um, I, I'm pretty sure that's right. Also, you mentioned the, leaving the coast of Liberia. The place they're leaving from mostly is Libya. Uh, in fact, we haven't seen many Liberians uh, in these boats. We have seen people coming out of Libya. So other than that, you know, I'm good to go. Right. All right. So I'll definitely um, fact check because I was watching um, his the, the man's sister in Canada, she was reading this letter in front of a lot of press, and she was just heart-wrenched. And I watched an interview with the father talking about how his family died, but we'll definitely yeah. just fact-check that. Uh, thanks again so much for calling in, Joel. Um, as I sure. mentioned, so people are being forced to flee because of poverty, hunger, and persecution. Uh, can you talk more about the extent of the crisis and why people in the United States just don't seem to be paying attention? Well, it's an interesting question. I just let me clarify. We've been cu- tracking this at IOM with something called the Missing Migrants Project for two years now. Uh, last year, 3,279 people died on, the, on the, all the seaborne routes to Europe, mostly leaving Libya for Italy. There were very few deaths and a very small traffic to Greece. This year, um, Libya is running about the rate we saw last year, slightly more. Uh, Greece has exploded. I mean, there's just so many. 250,000, I think, have arrived already this year. Um, and the deaths now, as of this morning, are 2,700-plus. So we're very close to last year's total with almost four months to go. So it's deeply concerned to us. Uh, it's a, You know, this has been a, an unraveling, you must say. Um, first, Libya becoming almost a failed state with no real authority in the hands of militias and criminal gangs, and they've, they've generated a lot of the, uh, the migrant traffic. And in, to, in many reports that we received from our staff in Africa, these are almost kidnappings. I mean, there aren't, they aren't people who necessarily set out for Europe, but once they fall into this migrant route, um, criminal gangs hold them at gunpoint until they uh, find the money to, to pay for their freedom, and then the freedom equals getting on a very dangerous boat and being put out to sea. We've had cases of people beaten to death, stabbed to death, before they got on the boat because they refused. Uh, we don't consider this a migration. We consider this kidnapping and, and extortion. Uh, that's an extreme version. Um, Syria is something similar in the sense that people who, who fled to neighboring countries like Lebanon and Jordan and especially Turkey probably imagine going home after a few weeks or after a few months uh, when you know when when the fighting was settled, uh, now it's been five years, and very few people have that expectation. So we're really seeing kind of a heading for the exits, uh, families selling all their property, whole villages leaving. I mean, of course, you know I, the ISIS offenses in places like Kobani last year, extremely important in triggering this. Incidentally, we're seeing uh, something similar in Afghanistan and Iraq now. Our people in Kabul tell us that. 5,000 passports a day are being issued by the Afghan authorities, which strikes many as a kind of a, a kind of a panic. Uh, and 
a lot of those people, I think it's 32,000 this year, have arrived in Greece from Afghanistan alone. So these are all places that share one characteristic of very little confidence that peace is coming. Joel, hi, this is Alyssa. Um, I just want to jump in here. So I, you know, we have, since we started this segment, Selena has referred to these people as refugees, um, and you've referred to them as both refugees and migrants. Um, And I know we're talking about different groups of people, like you pointed out, people leaving Afghanistan versus people leaving Syria. But in my mind, and I was watching something on TV the other day that also addressed this, is that at least with respect to people leaving Syria, because there's a civil war going on there, there's a legal distinction between calling these people or referring to them as refugees, which uh, gives them some kind of status uh, to seek asylum under international law versus calling people migrants who are just leaving, for example, like, um, you know, different parts of the country, different or different countries for economic purposes versus people leaving Syria or war torn areas looking for, say, political asylum because of uh, and, and then being classified as refugees. So I'm hoping you could address sort of, you know, yes, these are in some sense migrants because they are migrating from one place to another. But I'm hoping you could address the sort of legal distinction between classifying somebody as a migrant and classifying somebody as a refugee when it comes to them being able to get some kind of legal status in another country. Right. You raise a very important point, and um, I can only tell you I, I'm sort of inoculated now. Uh, I live, I've lived in Geneva for a year in this job, and I know that I speak of refugees and migrants kind of the way international aid agencies do. A refugee is only a refugee if he's forced, uh, forced migration, uh, fleeing conflict, distress, we also call it distressed migration, uh, that is one of the legal distinctions of what a refugee is. Also very important that a refugee cross an international border. Um, we, we consider at our agency a migrant can be someone in, say, the Philippines who lost their home because of a typhoon. They're not, they're not, they haven't left the Philippines, but we would call them migrants. That person wouldn't be a refugee under international law. So that's the main distinction. What we find in this particular, and this is why we mostly refer in our press releases and our speeches, to mixed migration flows. What we find in this current this current humanitarian emergency is a, a real overlapping. Um, I was in Tunisia in March. Uh, I was with I was with a group of our people when we rescued 89 migrants on a boat that was bound for Italy, uh, founded in international waters, and the Tunisian Coast Guard brought them in to shore. And there were I think 18 Somalis on that that boat and. They were taken away right away by refugee officials because they're from Somalia and they were considered refugee eligible, asylum eligible because they're Somalis fleeing such a terrible crisis. You know, it's gone on for 40 years in Somalia. And and I worked with our staff talking to the, the others, and they were mostly from Nigeria with lots of Gambians, Somalians, uh, some Ghanaians, uh, some Senegalese. Um, and they, they were, would be, in our parlance, economic migrants, except... Quite a number of the Nigerians had compelling stories of fleeing Boko Haram. They were from the city of Kano in northern Nigeria. Uh, They then would maybe be reclassified as refugees under that. So I'm trying to explain that it gets a little murky and there's some overlap. International Organization for Migration tends to use the word migrants as a a kind of shorthand catch-all. UNHCR, the United Nations Agency, uh, deals strictly with refugees. In fact, I think those are the ones who who accepted the Somalis on that boat. Uh, But we all sort of do the same work. And we also find cases, uh, quite a number of cases, 
of migrants who would freely admit they left of their own free will. They weren't forced from their homes. Uh, they went to become uh, what they thought were house cleaners or hairdressers or working in an office, and they're forced into prostitution. This happens quite a lot with uh, girls, particularly from Edo State in Nigeria. And we have rescued a number of them in Italy who have, who have agreed to, to cooperate with prosecutors and, and testify against their, their kidnappers. Uh, that Those women start out as migrants, but they absolutely become refugees, you know, right. on, on the road so, because and, of, of their treatment. So you can see that it's not a really easy black-and-white issue. Right. No, I, definitely. I mean, I guess the follow-up question is that, you know, regardless of where these people are coming from, whether it's Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, or some of the places in Africa you mentioned, those are all, from what I can tell, uh, nations that are currently having some type of either civil war or instable government where you have some kind of terrorist organization running part of it, um, or as you pointed out with Libya, just a s- sort of stateless territory where nobody's really in charge. So couldn't you say that in s- most circumstances, all of those people, regardless of whether they're coming from Syria, Afghanistan, or Iraq, could be considered refugees in some sense versus migrants? No. Most without a doubt. I mean, we had 88,000 reported Syrians in in Greece, which actually isn't the majority. 250,000 have arrived. Uh, This year we know 30,000 Eritreans from Libya. Uh, Again, not a majority. Libya uh, has already sent about 115,000 up up into Italy. So the word most, you know, to me means more than 50%. And last year, absolutely. Last year they combined... uh, Syria, Syria, Eritrean component alone was eighty thousand out of Libya. So that was that was that plus a few others would be most. But we have seen, and, and to be honest, um, we have seen a, a kind of buyer's frenzy in this market. If you if you use a Wall Street term, uh, the, there are always six thousand Syrians reported leaving Libya this year. Last year, forty five thousand the whole year. Now, that's a, that's a component of missing maybe 30,000, 35,000 at this point last year. Their numbers have been more than been compensated for by a new group of migrants, Senegal, Mali, Cote d'Ivoire, Togo, Burkina Faso, all of this on the, on the, on the outskirts of, of the Sahel, you know, the Sahara Desert, all of which are, 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 tend to be young men who have been persuaded by traffickers and, and smugglers and what, what we call in North America coyotes, uh, that this is the last great chance they're going to have to get to Europe, and to be honest, it would be it would be I think it would be wrong to say that 35,000 that have, have showed up from these countries, uh, Morocco is another big one that's, that's starting to, you're starting to hear a lot from, would be would be refugees because we don't know of any any conflict going on in some of those countries that would that would necessitate this kind of exodus. So we have to be honest, and our European partners, you know, implore us not to not to just Right, and decide for the public, you know, that it's one thing and not not many things that are going on here. Right. Um. So that kind of brings me to you know my next question, which I ask now, but um, we're gonna we're gonna actually go to a break, but then you can come back and answer it. The question I want to pose is, what exactly is the European Union doing about it? So, uh, from my understanding, European leaders have planned a migration summit in Brussels on September 14th, which is in a few days. Um, and Germany, mm-hmm. Italy, and France they're calling for more equitable distribution of the refugees throughout the European Union. So it sounds like they 
actually, you know, they're welcoming and they want to take a hands-on approach to dealing with these refugees. Um, you know, Germany, um, they take about 40%, but Britain and Spain, they take fewer. So we, they need to equalize it. But, you know, as I mentioned during my intro, Hungary has actually built a wall with its southern neighbor, Siberia, and vowed to deploy troops there. So um, when we come back, we're going to talk about, again, what the European Union is doing about it and what we should be doing about it here in the United States. So don't go anywhere. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard. You want dance. I'm going to make you dance. Yeah, Stanley, stick to engineering the show. We're back, guys. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3. The voice of Harlem. Harlem. And, guys, if you want to chime into the conversation, the number is 212-650-6903. Yep. And we're having a very important conversation with Joel Millman, who is the spokesperson for the International Organization for Migration. We're talking about the refugee crisis. In the middle, we have um, droves of people from the Middle East and Africa flocking into Europe to flee persecution, hardship, war, and a lot of other things that are going on there. And there's been an influx within the last six to eight weeks um, simply because, like, number one, it's the summer months and it's easier to travel um, when it's warmer out. And there's a growing prevalence of ISIS. So now we see all these people over there and we're continuing to hear stories about people who are being kidnapped, people who are, who are being killed, they're drowning. And it's just a horrible situation. But again, we are privileged Americans and, you know, sometimes you don't care about third world problems or countries. But it's time for us to care. And where we left off before we went to break, I asked Joel, what is the European? Union doing about it again. We have some countries like Germany who's taking 40% of the refugees, but then you have countries like Britain and Spain who are taking very few, and Hungary who has actually built a border to keep them out. So, um, Joel, can you sort of uh, give us a, a breakdown of what's going on and why? Why are some countries welcoming and others don't seem to be? Wow, that's a that's a deep question. And uh, let me see if I can back up a little bit. Uh, we, you know, we're 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 an organization of 157 member states, and, and all 28 of the European Union states are our members. So they're sort of our shareholders and our partners, our collaborators. And uh, we've been very careful not to single out Europe alone or any state alone for, quote-unquote, not doing enough. Um, it's really complicated for them. Uh, they have domestic politics to think of. They have all kinds of, you know, countries like Greece, or economic difficulties or you read about in the paper every day. Uh, we think they've done a fantastic job in Greece. We think in Italy they've done a great job. They literally have saved hundreds of thousands of lives over the last two years. So it's not appropriate to, to single out any country and say what they're doing wrong. However, uh, the complexity of, of European European law, international migration law, asylum law, these are things that, that punch up against each other. And what's kept, what's kept the continent from having a, a consistent policy in this emergency is partly because they believed at the beginning that they had a policy, something called the Dublin Agreement, where you were required to ask for asylum in the first country you got to in Europe. And nobody was doing that. I mean, a few people were, but mainly they were trying to get to Italy because it had the most borders to the rest of Europe, and you could get on public transportation, and you could race up up the boot and get into Austria or Switzerland or France and then quickly to Germany or, or, or further north. You know, Scandinavia is also a very popular destination. 
So you had a lot of countries uh, criticizing each other. You know, the Italians weren't doing enough. They weren't registering. They weren't fingerprinting them. They weren't telling these people that if you leave, you will not get asylum in Germany. You will not get asylum in Sweden. Uh, you're supposed to have it here. Um, and so the Italians would then respond and say, well, wait a second, we're one of 28 countries, and you expect us to house 170,000 people who don't even want to be here, who have families, you know, in Berlin or in Stockholm. So this this kept things from moving in a direction that would, would, would we call managing the emergency. Uh, but that's begun to change. And, and I think on balance, Europe has become very active and very responsible. The combination of the 71 people you mentioned, you know, who suffocated in the truck and the picture little boy had a really cathartic effect on a lot of a lot of people in Europe this past week. Uh, we we would say at IOM that we criticized Europe bitterly earlier this year because they cut back on the rescue at sea program that was so effective last year. Uh, there, were, there were people, in, in mostly in the U.K., who were arguing that let them drown was the appropriate response only because it would, it would stop people from coming. That's awful. And we, ser- we seriously doubted it would stop. And we pointed out case after case, especially in February and March, when if, if a robust rescue flotilla had been deployed as it was last year, hundreds of people wouldn't have perished. And to their credit, Europe responded immediately. They did a U-turn, which politicians don't do easily, and they redeployed massive sea resources. And the results have been pretty spectacular. I mean, the, the, the death rate, sadly, has continued, but the number of rescues is just astonishing. I mean, you had 4,000 in a day a couple of weeks ago. Wow. And we're, we're talking about 20 or 30 little boats that, that big ships have to get out there and search the Mediterranean and get to them before they sink. And, you know, mostly they have. It's, it's, it's remarkable. Right. And the Greeks have been great uh, with, with very little resources. Where there is a problem right now, and you, you alluded to this um, with Hungary and its border fence, is you get to Greece, there is no border with an EU country. You have to jump over other European countries that aren't members of the EU that don't have the same rules. That would be Macedonia, Serbia, to some extent Bulgaria, uh, possibly Albania. But these are places that... They don't have clear rules. They're not part of the EU, and and there have been real fits and starts, and there have been um, anger, and you know parties that are against migrants have been very vocal. There's been some hooliganism. There's been all kinds of things. I mean, Hungary's been the worst, uh, and, and it's 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 regrettable because Hungary is in the EU. You know, Joel, but I want to jump in right there and follow you up with that because I that leads me to my like follow up question about this issue: is what role is xenophobia playing? Or I mean, I think there's two things going on. One, there's also an economic pushback, kind of something like what you see here in the U.S. when it comes to our immigration conversation. Like, you know, Americans don't have jobs, so why are we taking in these people that now need to find jobs? But I also feel like there's also a certain amount of xenophobia also going on. I was hoping that you could address that topic. Oh, it's huge. It's huge. I mean, it depends on the place. Um, I was in Hungary in March, and the the Fuhrer there, it's actually predated what's going on now. They were building, they were they were furious with Serbians and Kosovars who were coming up using Hungary as a bridge to Europe or ask for asylum. Uh, and they were, you know, the, the Hungarian ruling party and, and quite a lot of the parliament were, were complaining that these are, these are fellow Europeans, sure, but they're Muslim and we don't want them. And of course, they've doubled down on that. They've said, we'll take refugees, but only Christians. I think the Czech Republic or the Slovaks have similar, something similar this past week. Um, you know, it is a huge issue with, with tribalism. It's the only word you can use for it. 
um, you know, I, I, I occasionally do radio in, in the UK, and, and uh, there, there are right-wing parties as, as lethal as anybody who watches uh, Fox News. And I've actually received anti-Semitic emails, because I guess I look Jewish on TV. <laughs> I mean, I am Jewish, but, but people are just furious that I've expressed, you know, the rights of migrants, or, we, or people should more, be more open to migrants. So we feel it every day, you know, how, how much xenophobia there is. Um, this is this is something that, that Europe is really going to have to deal with, as, as the U.S. has. Uh, changing the way uh, the sale, the sort of the, uh, the threats to identity and the way that affects people. Um, you know, America's a success story with with, with, uh, with its melting pot, much more than Americans often give credit. The resistance in Europe comes from four centuries of being a migrant sender continent and only 40 years of being a migrant receiving continent. Well, Joe, and can I is- challenge you on that for a second? Because you said that America doesn't get as much credit as it should for it being a melting pot. But we've seen some aggressive actions towards like stopping people who are trying to come into the country um, and as well as people who are being migrants. And, and, and with saying that, what, have, what has America done, if anything at all, to kind of like put pressure or support these refugees, so to speak. Well, these uh, we don't we don't. I mean, I, I look. I think America last year was faced with a, a very similar, not quite as the scale wasn't as great, but the sixty-eight thousand miners uh, from Central America, a region I've spent a lot of time in as a reporter in the past, uh, uh, was was received with some of the, mo- the most kind of xenophobic and and, and mob kind of violence that. I'd seen them in the U.S. in a long time, and yet almost all of them got to stay in the end under some kind of protection. And there are efforts that are going on right now that IOM actually is involved with of helping minors who qualify for family reunification not have to go through Mexico and risk their lives crossing the border, uh, but actually coming on plane to the U.S. So I think the U.S. has a very good record in its own hemisphere. And, you know, we take in, the U.S. takes in more refugees worldwide than any other country in the world, they tend to process them in, in refugee camps. You know, you, you remember the famous boat people from the, after the Vietnam War. Uh, over a million people were resettled around the world. It's, it's remarkable what the U.S. and other countries did. So uh, I think the U.S. record is good on the most part, but one thing you have to remember is, is governments like to be in the driver's seat. They like the idea of resettlement. They like going to Kenya and interviewing Somalis there and saying, Okay, you're someone who can come because you've got an uncle in San Diego, or you, you have a PhD, and and you know you qualify. They like the choosing. What they don't like so much is when an asylum seeker comes and says, "I'm here, and the law says you've got to take me until my case is settled." Well, that's and that, that's that's really exploded around the world, and that that may, that ticks governments off, you know. Um, Joe, unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap this segment up. But before we do, I wanted to ask you about the responsibility the U.S. has in helping these refugees. And why is it that we're not? Well, I think he just said that we were. But I think the question is more along the lines of why haven't we taken in nearly as many people? Or, like, what are we doing to take in some of the refugees? Well, you know, it's a fair question. I mean, there was a case in Spartanburg, South Carolina, within the last couple of months where a bunch of churches agreed to take uh, 65 Syrians, which is uh, approximately 1% of the, of the Syrians we see daily coming into these countries. Um, and just, uh, they got a backlash, principally from their Republican representative in Congress, Trey Gowdy, uh, who said, how do we know they're not all jihadists? How do we know that the State Department has done enough to screen them? 
Uh, it was quite an embarrassing moment for someone like myself, who's an American citizen, who's been engaged with this this issue for so long. I mean, it's a very small response, and and very responsible people asked to do it, and yet you had it became a political football almost overnight. Um, it, it is something that I think it's fair when you criticize Hungary or anybody else to say, you know, look in the mirror and what has your country been doing? Um, on the other hand, you know, there 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 is a very very uh, good record of, of granting asylum from these countries for anybody who arrives at the Mexican border, uh, which, you know, are in the thousands every year now. So um, the U.S. isn't quite as bad a player. It's not in their hemisphere, so they're not directly affected daily the way the Europeans are. Uh, maybe distance has something to do with it. I, I think all countries, I think Australia, I think lots of places should be out there right now saying, how can we help? You know, how many thousand can we take? Um it's 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 the brave politician who does that, and, and let's be honest, not many politicians are that brave. Joe, thank you so much for calling in today and all the work and activism that you and your organization has been doing to help these refugees and raise awareness to this issue. Can you please let our listeners know how they can get in touch with you and follow your uh, your organization? Well, I, our website is www.iom.int. Our email is media.iom. I'm sorry, media at iom.int. Uh, we have the Missing Migrant Project is, is available on the web. We, and it's tweeted every Tuesday and Friday when we update the numbers. Uh, you know, it's very easy to find. We're the oldest organization of this kind in the world. We go back to the displaced people of World War II, which the film today that you're seeing from Hungary and other countries looks a lot like the same thing that was happening 75 years ago. So it's, it's really remarkable. And, um, you know, we think the world's in better shape to, to handle it than we were 70 years ago, and we hope that uh, we hope that people call in and help any way they can. Thank you again so much, guys. And I just wanted to leave this here for all of our American listeners on the domestic front who uh, chime in and, and who have been listening. Um, I think if you still don't feel connected, if the pictures didn't touch you and the stories don't touch you, let's just think about what's going on here, right? And immigration is such a huge prevalent issue, and I think that for the most part, us on the left, progressives, liberals, when we hear Donald Trump saying, let's build a wall, and Mexican are rapists, and all 11 million undocumented people need to be deported, and Chris Christie saying things like they... Uh, undocumented immigrants need to be treated like FedEx packages and tracked and shipped back. Um, I think those are that type of rhetoric really raises a lot of alarm here with us and it resonates with us. But guess what? In Europe, they have the same right-wing type of mentality going on there. And we spoke about how there's so much discrimination and expo- um, and, and, and just people not being welcoming to uh to these refugees. I mean, even there was a European nation that said, it was the UK that said, let them drown. We'd rather them drown and die than come into our country, even though it's just a small fraction of all of Europe uh, when you think about it in whole. So I think that we need to just keep things in perspective and realize if we're going to fight fight on the domestic front against um, this type of rhetoric and this, this type of discrimination, then we also need to pay attention and be aware that it's happening on the other side of the world and they also need a voice. And on that note, we're going to go to a quick break. But when we come back, Alyssa's going to break down a quickie talking about Kim Davis and same-sex marriage.
WHCR 90.3 FM, New York.